yeah, there's UFOs, psychedelics, uh, lizard, you know, shape-shifting reptilians from other dimensions. All right. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. Harrison Cayley here with Elon Martin and Adam Daniels. Joined again by Arthur Versluis, author of the new book, American Gnosis, Political Religion and Transcendence. Now, this book just came out recently. I had a bit of trouble getting it at first, but I've gotten a copy and I've started reading it. I haven't finished it yet, so we're definitely going to have Arthur back on to have a second um, like post-book discussion to make sure we don't miss any of the, the really juicy bits because I'm just about 80 pages in so far and I've read the um, the previously published paper, Arthur, that you did that was that makes up part of two chapters later on in the book. So I've read a chunk of it. Um, but hopefully we'll be able to maybe get a few spoilers as we talk about the stuff that I haven't, uh, haven't read yet. So welcome to the show again, Arthur. Uh, great to have you here. Hey, thank you for, for, uh, inviting me. Um, I enjoy, I enjoy our conversations and, uh, you know, particularly about this book, which is, which has got some pretty wild stuff in it. It does. And only 80 pages in, I've already found some wild stuff that <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, I can't believe that's in here. Um, we talked a, a bit about this book, um, on our last discussion, which was probably a, a year or so ago. Um, so you'd been working on it and you kind of gave us a little hint of what was to come and now it's out there and you'd mentioned when, in our previous talk, this, the subject of this book, basically what you're calling neo-gnosticism and maybe, maybe to give kind of a background, I know you give definitions and, um, a, you make a bunch of different distinctions in the first chapter to the introduction. Maybe you could just kind of go over that for us a bit. What, what are the words you're using? So, so what is, what is Gnosis and how are you categorizing neo-Gnosticism? Well, essentially, uh, neo-Gnosticism is a term to distinguish what the book is really about from the study of Gnosticism as a religious movement or a set of groups and figures and texts in the early Christian period. So you had uh, multiple forms of Christianity in antiquity, and uh, they're very interesting, and, and many of the many of the texts were uh, dug up out of a cave in 1945, and then later published, and now are available on the web. Works like Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Philip, and so on. And so that set of I do discuss uh, a little bit Gnosticism in antiquity, and I talk about in the book how. Really, what happened is uh, the depictions of Gnosticism were largely determined by the church fathers, so-called, uh, who hated it, uh, hated the, the movements, ridiculed and detested it. Um, and then later from a, a Jewish scholar by the name of Hans Jonas. And Hans Jonas in the 1930s, uh, he wrote a book on Gnosticism that became uh, it helped shape how people understood it. 
And that form, what he put together, is actually what you see in neo-Gnosticism in our contemporary society. And that is, now that's not to say it's the same thing as ancient Gnosticism. It's not. What's in this book is all about modern themes. And, and those themes I call neo-Gnosticism because they hark directly back to this Hans Jonas set of themes, which include a false creator kind of uh, a creator God who is deluded, who creates uh, this kind of fallen or is responsible for this fallen creation. Uh, archons, these hostile entities uh, that try to prevent spiritual progress. Uh, and uh, a set of other themes, Sophia, the divine feminine, all of those are there in antiquity. But what happens is they recur in mo the modern period in in literature, in film, in uh, you see them in uh, video games. You see them in memes. I show in the book. Uh, I have a collection of memes that's just incredible now uh, showing all these neo-Gnostic themes. Now, they're not Gnostic. People who are creating memes today, they're not they're not saying, hey, I'm a Gnostic. Right. Mm -hmm. They're they're not even really they don't read the Gospel of Philip or the Gospel of Thomas, these these ancient texts. All of what's happening, the people who created the Matrix aren't reading these. You know, they said they're not reading. They weren't reading. This is not Gnostic. That's what they said. Uh, now. Uh, what you see today is rather people drawing on these specific themes for different reasons, mainly because they they help describe our world symbolically. So that, what I just talked about, is called cosmological Gnosticism. If you're in a cosmos that has hostile archons and it's a, it's a artificial creation uh, and you're seeking a way out of it, that is all cosmological, and that's mostly what we see in the book. It's still gnosis in the sense that it's escape. It is it is getting out, but it is not gnosis the way it was understood in terms of what I call metaphysical gnosis. Metaphysical gnosis is transcendence. It's literally the word meta, you know, meta beyond. So beyond metaphysics, beyond the physical, the transcendence. So gnosis, as I describe it, and as it's usually now used uh, really pretty broadly it means transcendence uh so that's the two twin themes of the book uh on the one hand these cosmological themes and on the other hand transcendence so so there is that is that a good explanation yeah that's yeah that's a good launching off point because one of the one of the things one of the terms and characters and qualities that recurs throughout the book is this this idea of Gnosticism or Neo-Gnosticism without Gnosis. So like you said, there most of the book is about this cosmolo cosmological Gnosis. It's kind of a, um, a limited and specific form of Gnosis. So it's a, um, well, you give examples like um, in the, not necessarily in the Neo-Gnostic sense, but if you look at different kind of Gnostic threads or streams, you have um, kind of a limited self-other 
um, transcendence. It might be in like uh, sexual practices, like like uh, mystical sexual practices, or in a, in a in a certain type of activity, maybe a magical activity, where they're kind of limited in space and time. Whereas the kind of metaphysical gnosis is more of this all-encompassing mysticism of transcending, um, transcending all of that self-other duality. And so, a lot of what we see in the neo-gnostics is um, strictly limited to. Um, well, this this other set of distinctions that you make, which is um, political gnosis, you add in in there. So you have you have this range of gnoses, gnoseses, <laughs> from from antinosis to like political gnosis to cosmological to metaphysical, I believe. And so the political gnosis is is kind of like. Um, well, it's it's the red pill in, in the matrix. It's waking up to this reality that uh, that well that the, the the reality we're seeing isn't the reality we thought it was. That there's a, a hidden layer to reality. There are hidden like mysteries and secrets to be learned about reality. And so you can see this kind of progression um, both in the book, I think you know as it goes on, but but also. Um, um, yeah, well, in the book and through these various figures of the the kinds of it's almost like the kinds of limits that they're able to to reach, or that they or that or that they just present in their works. So some are just strictly, um, st- strictly limited to, to this political. It's like, oh well, this is this is the this is the reality. We're we're led by um, these evil archons, which can take various forms, and that's kind of the end of it. And um, this I noticed, or what stood out for me in these couple chapters that I've read is, is you look at, as you mentioned, popular culture and, um, and literary culture. So you look at the history of these themes in American literature and film and TV. And one of the things that you point out regarding the main neo-Gnostic movies, which you single out as like The Matrix, uh, They Live, and Dark City, is that for the most part, um, there, there isn't really a lot of metaphysical kind of transcendent gnosis in there. So could you talk about a, a bit about that with kind of the movies as a launching point? So so why is it, or, or or if you don't know why, then maybe just comment a bit on this, these streams that you see and the, the, the seeming lack of of metaphysical, metaphysical gnosis in these media. Like what do you think is going on there? Well, it's it's interesting because uh, you don't see. You're right. You don't see uh, what I'm terming metaphysical gnosis in uh, really the bulk of the literature that I cover. And what I do is is actually in the survey of literature, I decided to let other scholars uh, demonstrate that these figures are all Gnostic. And so I, I cite, you know, I'll, I'll cite, like, for example, um, William S. Burroughs. So I have a little section on Burroughs in there. And and uh, so it turns out there are 12, peop- 12 people who've written books and lengthy articles arguing that he's Gnostic. Uh, and so you can demonstrate that clearly there are these neo-Gnostic themes in Burroughs, right? It's hostile cosmos, these these archontic type figures. Um, you know, he's searching for in Western lands, he's searching for some kind of um immortality, which he thinks is knowledge. Um, all that is neo-gnostic, 
Uh, at the same time, it doesn't seem like there's any uh, transcendence really in there. It's this perpetual kind of realm of darkness, really. And and you go through these authors, um, you can go back to the the great pessimistic cynic uh, Herman Melville, who uh, loved, he really liked the, and identified with the Gnostics and he even wrote about them in poetry. But there's no transcendence in Melville. And in fact, what he what uh, you see later in his in life in his life is the identification of you know true knowledge in a kind of Schopenhauer way with just pessimistic sense of the cosmos as a trap. Why is that? Well, partly it's constitutional, right? He just didn't like Emerson. He didn't like um, a lot of he just didn't like them, and so. You know, there's a constitutional aspect to this, but there's something else as well. I think historically what happened is mysticism, and I discuss this in a book called Platonic Mysticism. I have a chapter in there where I show that basically the word mysticism got more and more distorted in the last hundred years. And at this point, there's, you know, very little precise use of even the term. And Gnosticism or Gnosis, uh, focusing on Gnosis here, how many people really, you know, can be characterized as Gnosis, you know, no, having, as emphasizing Gnosis in the sense of transcendent knowledge? Who, who represents that in our society? Basically, it's like a handful of people. So I think it's more a matter of a kind of social suppression ultimately of of themes of gnosis uh i think that's a significant factor in all of it but there are other reasons as well so i think that's definitely one of them well maybe we can get into some of those other reasons but um on the, on the topic of the constitution of these figures it reminded reading that section in the in your book reminded me of something that William James had written about i can't i can't remember the exact phrase he used but he talked about i think was it sick or sad souls versus happy souls or something like that he made some kind of distinction between uh between the two types of two types of people basically pessimists and optimists he just had a different phrase for it and um it, it it basically sounded like the exact dynamic that you were describing with the the contrast between the the pessimists like Melville, uh, Hawthorne, and Poe, and then the kind of transcendentalists like Emerson, Whitman, and uh, who, were, who were the other? There was one or two other uh, of the, the kind of positive optimists in in American literature, and the, I think the way that that you put it is is like a pessimist is going to look at one of these kind of happy optimists and just be like, you know, just shake their head and, and be like, what, what's up with, what's up with these guy? Like he doesn't, he doesn't have any idea how the world really works. Right. And, and there, so there, it probably is constitutional on a, a very basic level of just personality that, um, um, it, it's, you just, you just have those, you have different types of people like with those different outlooks on life. And it seems like on the one hand, the, the pessimists, like James, 
argued that the pessimists seem to be that way because they see more of reality, because they see the darkness that the, the optimists don't see, and that um, and that it just makes sense to be depressed in a in a world where these bad things happen. On the other hand, um, you know there can there can be the tendency to to go to the extremes, right? So the extreme pessimist can be can embody this worldview that you basically talk about, this world rejecting worldview with without any hope, without any without anything higher, without any vision of any transcendence. And I think that's the that's the thing that that's the kind of common thread that I've that I kind of see so far. It's almost like a complete nihilism that, that this is the way the world it, this is the way the world is, and it's nothing more than that. And there's nothing possible more than that. So in a sense, that's a very anti-Gnostic theme within like these neo-Gnostic currents. Um, and you see that in a lot of the, the more, uh, more recent literature that you talk about, like um, you've, there's a ton of great authors in there, but that are more or less nihilistic. And uh, just, I mean, you talk about Philip Dick, William Gibson, um, um, off the, who else off the top? Well, Cormac McCarthy. Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. Yep. Uh, who's great. I mean, I, I, I've, I think, I think the first, you, the first book of his that you read was, um, um, oh, mind blank. What's it? Blood Meridian. Blood Meridian. Um, yeah. Yeah. First one I read was the road, but then I went on to Blood Meridian. Um, yeah. Great and dark book, but, but then you, but there are, there are some, there are some who have hints of it, right? Um, maybe you can talk about where, about some of the some of the sources where there's at least the hint of of transcendence, um, either in film or or literature. Um, do any come to mind? Yeah, there that th that does exist. Um, you know, it's not the case that the entirety of American literature is pessimistic, yeah. and it's certainly not the case even that these authors necessarily are. Um, in that what you're seeing is a critique of not the world it's uh so much as human society mm -hmm. so when you look at you know what's evil in you know blood meridian what's evil in cormac mccarthy's work generally what's where you know what is the source of evil in in uh, thomas pynchon it's uh society it's a screwed up society so it's not necessarily the case that these people, uh, you know, throughout the book, the folks that I'm writing about are necessarily pessimistic up as a, in an ultimate sense, but they're highly critical of the society that they're seeing um, or of fallen human nature, depending on the case. So McCarthy's a little more complicated, maybe, because uh, of the nature of his work and for a variety of reasons. Um, but still, I mean, the uh, neo-Gnostic themes have people have identified those within his works. Uh, Thomas Pynchon does, you know, I always thought of him as a total pessimist, really. Uh, think, you know, a, criti a critic of the machine as a whole, machine society. And yet I found in my rereading of his work uh hints of you know or at least potentially hints maybe they're ruses right um but the idea of a pythagorean order or you know uh shambhala secret kingdom and those kinds of things are hinted at and kind of um 
uh, alluded to in a way that suggests that something else is possible. And I think that's an underlying theme of the whole book, really, in terms of many, many different uh, subjects and authors I look at. Yes, there's an element of pessimism, for example, uh, David Icke, um, you know, can be regarded as pessimistic about society, right? But not necessarily about human nature. He's actually, um, you know, emphasizing spiritual awakening and spiritual practices and so on. So so it's it's not quite so simple as yeah. um, it's as simply pessimism optimism it's more recognizing that there's something wrong in society and it could be better right it doesn't have to be this way that's what you see over and over and that's what you also see in the films right mm -hmm. and one of the one of the examples that you gave that i was very happy to see was <laughs> was david lynch in there because uh, these guys will 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 joke and, and tell you that David Lynch is is my favorite filmmaker. Because I, I'm I'm interested. Um, David Lynch just as a character, as a person, interests me and his work too. Because, well, first of all, I don't like his paintings, right? I don't like his actual art because it's just so dark and disturbing. Like even more than his films, and I just don't like looking at it. But even his all his practically all of his films, all of his work is extremely dark. It's about like the the most basic forms of evil and and intricate forms of evil and yet um and even twin peaks which you talk about the entire series i mean it, it like w finishing watching that uh that third season that just came out a few years ago um it it leaves you with a a bad a bad feeling right <laughs> like it's it it's up in the air it's you're not sure what happened and it's just, there's, it, there's a feeling of just something's off. I, that's the only way I can describe it right now. And yet you look at David Lynch himself, and of course he's, he's a, an, a, a, an advocate of transcendental meditation. And he's kind of, in, in that sense, the happiest, like most, most fun person to be around by all accounts of the people around him. He's just a total gentleman. Um, he's got that funny voice and he's always polite and he doesn't, swear often and he's all about transcendence and he and you hearing him talk about meditation um you you would not expect him to make the art that he does so the way i've always interpreted his art is that he it's a, it's kind of an an initiation into the total depths of human and non-human depravity and the the reality of what exists in the world as a kind of contrast but there's contrast to the good but there's always kind of a a sliver and a, a possibility of that, 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 that can be transcended and that there is a transcendence that kind of, um, beyond that. Um, do, do you have kind of similar thoughts on Lynch? Um, and how, how do you see, how do you see those kind of themes fitting into, into this and especially just Lynch himself? Like what do you, what do you think of him and his, uh, his strangeness? Well, I, you know, I've, uh, been, interested in his work for a long time and you know have have seen maybe not everything but pretty close to everything uh including that entire that entire season that was uh released uh, after after a period of many years of twin peaks i watched the whole thing and i it, it's he's consciously invoking 
all kinds of things in there in terms of of um uh 1920s 1930s uh films and you know pre you know previous all kinds of uh gestures in there uh or direct allusion you know really allusions and then uh often what he's doing is consciously breaking down the way you uh see a character so he's making a character not a, you have to separate yourself from the character because the character is literally separated from the character right so there's a conscious disconnect that happens in uh twin peaks uh now what is really that about is that transcendence well now it doesn't really it's not i wouldn't describe it that way and there doesn't seem to be a lot of light in his work uh that's that's absolutely true does he fit into or or resonate with these neo-gnostic themes oh yeah i mean just imagine yourself in a lynch world right i mean one of these worlds just <laughs> no, you know, you. <laughs> project yourself in there well it's like we're living in a neo-gnostic world already and this is like neo this is like uh what was chagyang trungpa rinpoche said of um lsd it's super samsara right like you go you go on lsd that's super samsara well that's kind of what lynch gives you is super samsara and so you know is there transcendence i'm not seeing it not not in his work yeah i would argue that blue velvet might have given us a taste of transcendence i mean the <clears throat> uh the the protagonist by the end of the hero's journey um is able to restore uh as much of um uh Dorothy, I, I, Isabel, Isabella Rossellini's life as possible. He gets the girl at the end. The villains are all um, apprehended or killed. Um, but, but on the whole, I would agree because so many of his films uh, leave the protagonists kind of stuck uh, in in the in the the morass or the maze or the labyrinth of the the evil influences that they're surrounded by and you get a, a the flavor of the metaphysical it kind of permeates the whole thing but on the whole i i would have to agree i but i, I did just want to say that uh we got a we got a little bit of of light at the end of blue velvet which is um admittedly one of his darkest uh and and best works um i did want to ask you um arthur about uh so you have this chapter which is the one of the first ones that i read uh and one of the few i'd, I'd like to get to the rest of the book but it's called american archontic neo narcissism and uh in it you focus mainly on the kind of um uh the the political ideas that are most often familiar with uh, the right in the U.S. and in Western civilization, South America perhaps as well, um, that that allude to uh, 
or or watered down versions of of some kind of um, understanding uh, on, on an intuitive level, it seems to me, of this of this kind of you know light versus dark uh, um, conflict that we're seeing in the West today, and. Um, it, it made me think a little bit of uh, Paul Schrader, the screenwriter, um, would discuss um, transcendental film. And he would uh, make reference to guys like Luc Brisson and, and, and these kind of very obscure movies that were nonetheless, uh, you know, filled with these dark protagonists who always managed to find the light at the end of the tunnel. And, and Schrader's point um, alluding to Brisson was that even though these these intense kind of morose, unenjoyable, obscure art house films um, had this concentrated cinematic representation of light versus dark uh, in the way that maybe a Dostoevsky novel would have, um, that that there were versions of it that were uh, watered down and and and. Um, and propagated throughout society and pop culture, as you allude to in the earlier chapters, which even though they weren't uh, they weren't quite the the full feast of a of a discussion on Gnosticism, um, they were they still gave enough of a flavor of a taste of a of a hint of an on ramp uh, for many people, and. I was wondering, given the intensity of the times that we're living in right now, given the kind of life and death uh, flavor of the experience of living in, in this time and place, um, how much of an on-ramp, if you will, might you say, you know, the, the memes, uh, the, the kind of um, American archontic new Gnosticism memes that we're seeing and, and ideas, how much of a, uh, of a strength might they in potential have for people to achieve? Uh, and I realize this sounds a little out there and even a metaphysical um, understanding of Gnosticism where, where that, uh, where it's, it, it's it's powerful or more powerful than we might otherwise assume uh, on the surface of it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And one of the things I would say is that I didn't really in launch, you know, in starting out on the book uh, and for some, for some period, I had a completely different outline in mind and I had a completely different book really in mind. Uh, so I didn't really expect to discover everything that I discovered because I didn't know until I discovered it that this is what I was going to find. And so that's true of authors in the book. Uh, there are some there are some authors in the book that have never been published. There's literally nothing published. So you look at the work of uh, Charles Musace. This is the first, this is the only place where everything by Musace is suddenly there, right? And and so, because uh, I read every, I have every, you know, I went through everything. Now, uh, I didn't really know that stuff was out there until I discovered it, you know, and started 
and started to really um, expand uh, my range of knowledge. Now, when it comes to the realm of memes and the dissident right, which is really what uh, where the almost the I would say the overwhelming majority of the neo-gnostic memes in the book, uh, I could find essentially almost none uh, on the left. Very, very few. It's almost always dissident right memes. Well, why? Right? Why? Because you look at how things actually are in American society and, you know, the the if the uh, head of the FBI is saying that these these are the folks that we need to target, uh, then from from their perspective, uh, Gnosticism is a very natural way of expressing yourself because uh, you're trapped in a hostile cosmos. From the point of view of the right, the total domination of the left in society uh, de facto makes it a hostile cosmos. And so what I do in the book is then uh, develop not only this, but this set of, uh, you know, discussion of memes and uh, the sense that uh, people on the right are in general uh feeling that they're living in a hostile society and an artificial society artificially constructed but also the idea that there's a spectrum that led me to realize that there is a spectrum of gnosis right it's not just one thing and you define it and then you're good now these are is this is it or it is or it isn't there's political gnosis right which is waking up to the sense that something is awry in the world and you see that in all these films where neo neo is presented with a you know with the pills right famously presented with the pills and you can take the red pill you know or you can take the blue pill and then it became the white pill and the black pill there's all these pills right that are now available out there in culture as it were uh, or in society the idea and those pills in quotes are knowledge but there's different levels of knowledge because I started to see also in the same circles, there's now political gnosis, meaning waking up to the nature of the system. But then that intersects with and overlaps with people who emphasize spiritual dimensions. They're not opposed to the political dimensions. They recognize it, but then they're open to spiritual thing, you know, spiritual, spiritual understood in a very broad sense. So it could include, you know, I mentioned in there uh, a group on Gab, 5D star seeds. It's got this long title, right? Well, that title, you know, that group and, and people posting in it, have said some very Gnostic things that are very much aligned with political gnosis, but then bleed over into spiritual, right? And so there's kind of a spectrum. The people who are uh, metaphysical, I define as or characterize as metaphysical gnosis that represent that really have nothing to do with the political gnosis. So in that sense, there seems to be a gap. There's like a spectrum and then this other group that is simply not concerned with the political so much hmm. does that make sense yeah 
Well, you, there was a, a great word. I think it was on one of the right at the beginning of the book for for that kind of merger of spirituality and the political element, conspirituality, which I thought was hilarious. I'd never, I'd never heard that one before. I can't remember if you came up with that one or if you or if someone else did. No, someone you found that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a thing. Great. There are there are people yeah. who specialize in conspirituality, which is you know like conspiracy theory, conspiracy spirituality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a word like Brangelina or something. I don't know. Yeah, portmanteau. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. So what? Okay, so you've described why it is that these neo-gnostic themes seem to be more prevalent on the right, at least at this time, I just want to put together a, a few random thoughts. So so one that kind of just stood out a bit was in relation to the the development of the neo-Gnostic memes and images, like um, the red pill. <clears throat> and you, you give an example that took place on Twitter with, um, was, it, was it Donald Trump Jr.? I think that's that basically tweeted something about taking the red pill and then, um, or correct me, who were the two figures? Was it Trump Jr. and Ivanka? Yeah, I think I think it yeah. was her actually. Um, they, but but yeah, it uh, it spread as these things often do, right? Mm-hmm. And then the one of the Wachowskis replied back saying basically "f both of you" or something, and so yeah. so, so the. So you you see that um, the sources of the the sources of a lot of the neo gnostic stuff it seems have have come from people on the p- political left of the spectrum like the Wachowskis well probably a lot of the artists and a lot of the like creative types that I mean creative types tend to be more on the left side of the political spectrum so you it's, it's just kind of to be expected so but it, it's kind of it's kind of strange um, it's a it's a it's a, a weird symptom of our kind of political climate that um that those polarizations and those divisions even crop up in these terminologies oh and it was the same with they live um you gave an example of uh was it carpenter right who who wrote and directed it and he was saying he he was having none of they live being used in the current climate to describe you know what's going on and of course the meme in in they live is the glasses the magical glasses that show you the reality behind the the, the surface reality and and he was saying no this was about reaganism you know i hated the the capitalists and the yuppies that's what this movie was about and it's like and that's all it's allowed to be about um and, but this ties into to this notion that you have of these kind of intellectual ideational bricks that make up a you know a something like in this case gnosticism how how there doesn't have to be a direct line of transmission from let's say the ancient gnostics to to any other particular group that may have gnostic themes whether you're looking in history and you're looking at like the the, the cathars and the bogomils or the in these modern day neo gnostics there doesn't need to be a line of transmission because like you said with the with the political like with the dissident right when you when you're living in a situation that you can interpret in such a way and that seems to be like for for you is that reality these bricks come naturally these ideas come naturally because they fit and in a sense you could say they come naturally because they might just they might actually be reality in some sense so you can so you've got kind of like as opposed to like to use a biological example you know evolution that you know you've got traits that carry on through 
specific lines, or you might have what they call like convergent evolution where things happen at, at different times, totally unrelated to each other, just because they're, you know, approaching the same endpoints or, or, um, matching to certain conditions and kind of the, the last random point to throw in here. I think I mentioned this the last time that we talked is, uh, I should have looked up the book, but there's this book, um, on, on Gnosticism and the Dead Sea Scrolls. I can't remember the title or the author. I, I'll have to put it in the show description, but, um, it was this, this guy's argument that, they rep- that those two bodies of work kind of represented similar social conditions and that from his perspective, oh, apocalypticism, I think was the, the main th- theme, um, the apocalypticism found in both, um, bo- both in, in texts from both of these sources, that apocalypticism, um, and he traced back the antecedents into like the, the Egyptian kind of Egyptian sources and Egyptian magical papyri and things like that. He, he was arguing that the, the, the political situations seem to be what dictated the the arising of these types of worldviews, and that that's for him that seemed to be the main thing is that when, for instance, under foreign occupation, well, under foreign occupation, it would be na- it was natural to think that something has gone wrong on the metaphysical scale uh, on the metaphysical scale in the in the in the higher worlds because the god that was that was in like. God in the world and everything was not right. There was something out of whack. God, God should be in charge. Our God should be in charge. And we have this like foreign invader. That must be, I, that must mean either that our God has, you know, failed or done something or, um, you know, these, this other God was stronger, but there was this very, this, this, pol- this political, um, this political situation, which was seen as being ruled by foreign, you know, foreign bad rulers had this effect on the, on the spiritual thinking and the spiritual writing of the, of these, of these people. Um, and so it seems to me that like the question, this is all kind of leading up to, I think is, is that, and it might just be, um, the answer might just be what you already said about, for instance, on people on the, on the right, seeing this as kind of an archontic, you know, reality, but what is it about, reality about these, this current times that leads to these themes, either experiencing a resurgence or, or just making them so, um, so readily available. Um, is it strictly a matter of just, you know, politics that's been going on for the last like five, 10 years? Is is there more to it? Like, how, how do you, how do you see this in kind of like the, the, the bigger picture or the big picture? Well, that's a great question because the the book is constructed to go through different areas. So you look at literature, you look at films, like they live this idea that, you know, this guy, this, this former pro wrestler, who's an itinerant worker um, in reality, he's a former, he's a pro wrestler. Uh, He he goes out and, um, he finds these glasses and when you put the glasses on, you can see reality. Okay. You can see through the, the false world of the ads and you see that we're actually under this kind of metaphysical occupation, right? That there's this or cause this, this kind of cosmic 
I shouldn't say matter. I should say this cosmic occupation of aliens, right? They're these skull looking aliens. And so uh, that are all really running things. And so those memes that come from that, uh, I've seen two sets of memes. One, the glasses. Okay. So you have the glasses on. You see in the meme, first the glasses are off and you see some message, you know, some message that's out there. Uh, uh, typically um, an ideological message of some sort. And then he puts the glasses on and then the message is suddenly transformed to what it really means, right? Which is uh, uh, construed as anti-white or something, you know, right? So mm -hmm. what is what what you're seeing there is uh, a natural confluence between those images or the images of the skull-faced alien sort of uh, beings or lizards. I found I saw some great memes uh, yesterday, in fact, on uh, uh, lizard people showing lizard people. You know, very well constructed uh, memes of lizard people. Now. Uh, that's a whole rabbit hole to go down in it, in <laughs> itself. Uh, should we want to go in that direction? But the question you're asking is, what is the larger significance of all of this, right? And I think there's two ways to think about it. One is uh, an expression that something from the point of view of the authors and the filmmakers and the uh, people who are drawing on them uh, for the memes, is that something is awry in, the, in society. Something Society itself has gone awry. It's gone astray. And implicit in that is we need to fix it, right? So that's one kind of meta- now, that's true of certainly a Pynchon. It's true of, you know, many, many of these authors and many of the films, really. That's what and basically all of the memes. That's what they're saying. That is one way of understanding it. And I think it's totally legitimate way of understanding it. In other words, uh, from the point of view of somebody who creates a meme about the White House being occupied by archons, well, it's not necessarily that there are actually literally lizards in the White House, but from the point of view of somebody on the dissident right, it's an occupied, it's seen as occupied. Now, you could imagine a Christian nationalist, um, let's say that, let's just, as, a, as an imagination practice, you could say, uh, kind of imaginary, imagination experiment, you could say, all right, so Christian nationalism has taken over the country. Uh, you could imagine Gnostic memes from the left, right? Just reverse the situation. You could see totally archons. Who are the archons? It's the Christian nationalists. And not only that, but you look at the work by Stephen Wolf on Christian nationalism. And what does he say? Well, we might have to burn some heretics, right? I mean, go read the book. He's talking, he's citing a bunch of Reformed theologians about how you might have to kill some heretics. I mean, you know, it's regrettable, but, you know, sometimes you got to kill heretics, right? So from the point of view of the left, under that circum circumstance, totally I can see Gnostic memes, right? 
That's a thought experiment. Now, stepping back further, for almost all of the fig these figures we're talking about, it's not that the world, that nature, that the cosmos is cracked somehow or fallen or broken, but there is that view. Um, and Musace discusses it. He discusses the idea that the cosmos itself is, uh, there was a kind of cosmic rupture, and that's what created our parasitic and destructive uh, society that we're living in because nature itself has parasites. Why does it have parasites? Why does it have, you know, uh, this destructive cycle, uh, violence and bloodshed and so on? Well, he goes back to Gnostic and then uh, Mandan. He, he refers at length to a Mandan text and some other some other sources in order to make his argument that there's something really actually that went awry in the cosmos itself. So not everybody, you know, is necessarily on this society only mm -hmm. uh, path, you could say, but uh, Musais is kind of an outlier. He's, He's such an extraordinary guy. He's he's like he came from another planet or another dimension or something. As as you read his work, you know you you read his work and it's just so it's not just read, listen to it. I mean he he created a whole scale of music. He created hyper you know the, he discovered this thing he called hyper numbers, which is a number theory. He discovered this. Uh, he he actually created music based on a non on a different uh, musical system than what we're used to because you don't have to use the musical scale that we take for granted generally you can actually use others he used others uh for initiatic purposes so so you know he's like somebody from another you know i don't know he he but he's not alone so i think there's two answers to your question and it just depends how far back you want to pull right yeah yeah. And that seems to be almost the, well, I'd say that's the way reality is designed that, um, that there are always, that there are always further layers and that, uh, you know, people can, can stop at a certain layer and maybe they're fine with that layer and maybe they're prevented from in, in some way, whether from some external internal or external, um, source from progressing any further, but there's always, there's always new barriers to break down or new veils to lift. <coughs> And that seems to be, um, and, and new heights to, to rise to and develop to. And I think that's kind of what the, the spirituality element of that, you know, that we find in conspirituality or just, or in religion or spirituality in general, or mysticism is, is there are constantly like higher levels of reality or new levels of awareness, um, to kind of break through to and to, and to transcend maybe, um, well, I wanted to follow up on all of that, Harrison, because um, the, the, the sense I'm getting, uh, is that all of, all of these, uh, hints of Gnosticism through, uh, neo-Gnosticism, for instance, and, and all of these, um, pop culture references and, and, uh, this political red pilling and all of that, it would seem to me, and I, I'm wondering what you think about this, Arthur, is, um, because in, in metaphysical Gnosticism, you explain that there is this uh, 
there is this kind of um, breaking down of of the knower and the known, the the uh, uh, a connection to the divine, and <clears throat> it was very interesting to me that in in the election of 2020, you had these very middle of the road Christians going to churches and praying for Trump's success, like uh, like heartily, like like. Like they were almost compelled, or they they knew on some level that th- that this was a, or thought on some level that this was a spiritual battle that they were engaged in via the the, the political battle. And so, my my question is: Do you ever get the sense that uh, there is this resurgence of Gnosticism, however uh, however neo Gnostic a form it's taken? Precisely because uh, there is some um, there is some some influence from an objectively uh, existent divine energy or force, it, yes, that that there is this uh, imbuing of uh, of understanding of energy uh, that is meant to counter um, all of all of this darkness. Uh, that that we've been uh, witnessing in the you know in the social and political and cultural spheres in the past however many years. Yeah, there's it's it's really interesting because what you know it all depends on who you're you know who you're looking at and who you're who you're discussing in terms of the book. Uh, but from the point of view of many of the people, political people that I'm uh, citing or drawing on, uh, ultimately they're envisioning something better. They're envisioning a different world. And uh, some of those folks I demonstrate are explicitly uh, emphasizing, and I, mention in particular uh light workers people who see uh the world as uh a battle between light and dark and illumination is is taking place and from that perspective and this is this is exactly opposite of course the you know um uh, perspective that you've seen recently but the idea that as this woman who's a light worker that I discuss in the book said, I, you know, I asked her directly about that. And she said, she said, uh, President Trump, it isn't that he sees himself this way or that he is perfect. It's just that he's acting as an instrument of light. And he is on the side of light. That's, that's what she said. That's her perception. Now, when you get to figures like I mentioned at the end of the book, Joel Morwood, um, who is who kind of followed in the footsteps of um, uh, Franklin Merrill Wolf, who was a kind of yogi figure in the mountains of of um, California and had a ranch in the mountains. He lived to about 100 and late in life, uh, Joel Morwood came and showed up uh, at his door. And Morwood uh, had had the spiritual awakening experience. 
Now, the experience that he had and that uh, Franklin Merrill Wolf had is very closely aligned with, although maybe not identical with, what what is visible in Buddhism. It's it's not saying they're Buddhists, but they themselves draw on Buddhism. There, you don't find this this kind of discussion of politics and the darkness of society and so on very much at all little bit because morwood did go to china he went to china thinking that it was going to be great and it was the future actually that's what he thought at that time under mao and what he discovered was that he was being shown a potemkin village and that actually was you know it was not so great and so there is, even in Morewood, a little bit of this. So I'm saying is there's a spectrum, but there is um, a kind of breaking break-off point where people who are emphasizing strictly illumination uh, are not so much engaged in the political. Mm-hmm. I think that that is that is what you broadly see. Uh, maybe not a hundred percent. I'm not going to say 100%, because uh, when you go to Stephen Huller, who's a contemporary Gnostic, uh, uh, head of a Gnostic church in California, almost all of the themes in the entire book appear in his written work. So it's all the way through. So it all the way through the book. So it's not the case that you can just make these firm distinctions. Mm -hmm. So what I'm doing is giving you kind of like a broad uh you know a broad swath of what's going on in the book well you mentioned huller i haven't read him but after you you mentioned a book of his last time we talked so i've got it i just haven't read it yet but huller he he came what, what country did he come from originally was it uh do you remember it was an eastern european country right yeah, he came. He was behind the Iron Curtain when yeah. he was young. So he, I mean, he came to America specifically because of freedom. And he wrote a whole book about the alchemy of freedom, alchemy, right. spiritual alchemy of freedom. So he's very explicit. And he, in many ways, I, I discuss him at the end of the book because he he does bring together all of these themes themes in such a elegant way, and. Uh, He's so he's a dis, uh, you know, a very distinctive American figure, actually, uh, uh, maybe even I would say unique for a variety of reasons. And, um, uh, he had seen communism firsthand, as actually Morewood had, and he didn't want any part of it. That was true, also, by the way, of Musais, who who said that, uh, communism is he said it's like a nature, it's like a fungus or a parasite. Um, it, it's ultimately only destructive Hmm. in its contemporary form. And, um, sorry, the name of that guy, was it Moorhead that you just mentioned? Moorwood, Joel Moorwood. Moorwood. Yeah. Yeah. So, so given his background, did he, did he kind of just stop talking about any kind of political dimension and move into this totally kind of spiritual um yes view okay because i was um that that kind of makes me i've got a few questions in my mind about 
this kind of division, how the you have the kind of the mystic transcendentalists, um, Gnostics who kind of um, don't se- seem totally cut off or to seem to, to totally isolate themselves from the political discourse. You've got a guy like Huller who kind of seems to straddle both, if I'm if I'm hearing correctly. And I wonder, I'm wondering if this has something to do with um, a phenomenon that Lobachevsky talks about. Uh, and you, you, you cite, I was happy to see you cite uh, political ponderology in there. It's v- very nice. Um, <laughs> but Lobachevsky, basically, one of the themes of, Lob- of, of ponderology and, and on the topic of pathocracy, which is Lobachevsky's word for essentially what we think of as communism in the, 21st cent- in the 20th century, um, the communist system, is that like, for the people living under it, the people who had the, like, the, the most um, kind of the, the closest experience to it, the most intimate experience with it, you know, living under it their entire lives, um, some often being born into it and living their entire, entire lives there, is that it's an experience that can't really be transmitted to someone who hasn't experienced it. Kind of like gnosis, perhaps, but a, a strange kind of gnosis. <laughs> it's not that, uh, you know, it doesn't feel very good. So you've got this this scenario, this this phenomenon where you've got Eastern Europeans um, who might come over to the, United, to the United States, move here, and the way Lobachevsky describes it and the way a bunch of the people that I cited in the notes, um, like fellow Polish people, um, other just other people from China or or Eastern Europe, they describe coming to the United States and basically not being able to talk to anyone because no one understands. They try to have a conversation with a normal American, and they just like th- there's no common ground for them to 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 transfer to communicate what their experience was, and also with the people in um, the way that Lobachevsky describes it, and the way that Rod Dreyer kind of describes it in, in his book "Live Not by Lies" about the kind of underground Christian movement in the in these Eastern European countries, is that. That like the the spiritual and the and the political were kind of like side by side, like you couldn't escape one without you couldn't have one without the other because they they were they were both like tangible realities for people. So there was the constant political pressure that could be felt everywhere, and there was this spirituality that grew and developed um, within that that crucible. I, th- I think that's the word that Lobachevsky even uses that that this this was a crucible in which. Um, new ideas, new, new or old reappropriated or re-energized values kind of took shape and took hold of people. Um, so I'm wondering if the, if how much of the division is a, um, um, what's the word, like a lack of compatibility between the two and how much of the division might be a product of circumstances that maybe in 10 or 20 years, of you know of political totalitarianism, <laughs> maybe the picture might be different, and maybe the the Gnostics and the, the the spiritual transcendentalists might have a different. They might be writing different books and, and giving some slightly different teachings, or at least including some some material that they wouldn't otherwise at this point in time. I'm wondering what, how how you what you think about all that. Do, do you think it's like a a difference in kind of realms, like the worldly and the spiritual, that just on some level don't mix, or or should there be some mixture, or is that, or is it strictly a, a, um, a product of you know the worldly situation in Eastern Europe? Why you sometimes see those um, those themes 
put together like in the work of Huller. Well, that's a great, you know, a great uh, uh, question because uh, in contemporary society, and this is something that I I had to um, confront in looking, you know, in, in writing the book, is that uh, broadly speaking, uh, it's very difficult for people to see today to see the perspective of someone from the other political side so for example uh people who are on the dissident right the idea seems to be that uh uh as uh, hillary clinton famously said these are the deplorables in other words uh one can only deplore everything about them and they have no valid points whatsoever nothing that they say is valid now uh in going in writing the book and in working with the material i had i my approach is empathy in other words i'm empathetic to whomever i'm writing about whether it's gnostics or whomever in the sense of trying to understand now from the point of view of of these folks um and i'll give an example i tell the story in here of um of uh josh neal and Josh Neal wrote a book called American Extremist. It's kind of his autobiography. And he's on the dissident right. Well, who is he citing? Uh, well, he's citing political ponderology because from his point of view, that book exactly conformed to his understanding of the world. And his own worldview was very much aligned with what would be in Eastern Europe if you were what uh, if you were, for example, Cheslav Miwash. Your Cheslav Miwash behind the Iron Curtain, under you know, under communism, uh, looking at the communist system, and uh, spirituality is itself uh, part of your critique of that system now when you go to josh neal now for a lot of people this is a this is going to be mu very mind-bending right because it forces you once you grapple with this you're compelled to recognize and this is totally just objectively true you're compelled to recognize that this con this contiguity between these figures is real whether you like it or not in other words josh neal is actually citing political panorology and seeing his own he was he was um he tells his story in the book uh as somebody on the right but he's also analyzing society american contemporary american society and what he sees is that it's effectively very much akin to what you saw in communism uh contemporary 2020 you know, 2020 society or 2018 society is very, uh, already very contempt, very similar to what you saw in uh, Eastern Europe in the situation of somebody like Miwash or Lobachevsky, right? That they're, uh, that the dissident is 
also spiritually a dissident, and he describes his political awakening as a spiritual awakening. So these to think about these things in this way compels a kind of mind change, you could say. It, it compels you to see things in a in a way that maybe you've never confronted before. And that's, you know, that's really interesting because that's kind of what Gnosticism did back in the day, also. Just just saying. <laughs> uh, that is back in antiquity. It also compelled um shifts in understanding and perspective. Hmm. So so that's what I would say. Maybe it's this crucible that we're seeing now here that is compelling individuals to ask the right questions and, and move towards a, a greater spiritual understanding um, as an answer to uh, the pressures that they're feeling when they know on some level that things are just not uh, going the way um, they might otherwise under more normal circumstances, under uh, a healthier system. So in one sense, it, it may not be that, getting back to an earlier point I was alluding to, uh, that, that there is this uh, an, an extension of, of knowledge and gnosis and, and assistance and help, or maybe there is to some degree, but there's also individuals feeling this, this heat, uh, for lack of a better term, this um, distress that is, that is pushing them, that is compelling them to, to go towards understanding what it is that's, that's making them feel this way. Um, and it, it could probably take many different forms. And, you know, it's interesting to me that Norman Finkelstein is not, he considers himself an atheist, uh, and yet he's, he's a, a profound truth teller, uh, and, and providing, um, answers and knowledge in, in his sphere of, uh, political history and, and influence. Um, but still others might. Um, you know, you have the, the, the Archbishop uh, Vigano, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who is very political and understands the political in, in spiritual terms and is able to frame things in, in that sense. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I guess that goes back to what you were saying a little earlier about this, you know, it's really very complicated in some ways. And there is a spectrum and I guess according to one's constitution and, and knowledge and propensities, it a response to um, what we're what we're seeing unfold is going to come out in very different ways. I think it was really interesting how you've got the um, at least from the little bit you know that I've gotten through of of the work so far um, how from everything that you know has that you have written uh, and everything that you've said um this gnostic ideas exist not because of some theoretical thing that would have to exist you know because this is what we say is going on but there seems to be this mapping of reality and that is where all of this mapping from the American dissident right who are drawing on these different ideas and and it's mapping to this this more ancient Gnostic framework that they aren't aware of 
uh, or maybe they aren't aware of, um, it, they're mapping it onto something that they're seeing because that's actually what's, what's really going on. And, you know, regardless of whether or not, you know, they realize all, all, everything as being, you know, Gnostic or, or whatever, that's, that's all kind of irrelevant. It's all just really fascinatingly interesting how without any formal, you know, exposure to these Gnostic thinkers and writers, they still are able to pick up and draw on the ideas behind them because it's very real. The, you know, the you can feel the the spiritual angst uh, from from what's going on with the political pressures, like you're talking about, Alan. The the pressures in the political sphere it it leads you in two directions because when your society isn't functioning correctly, well, obviously you can look at that purely from the political standpoint and realize, well, I mean, we can we could probably do a little bit better than than what we're seeing right now. Right. I think we could probably, you know, not be as mean to each other or as, as stupid. Um, and that's just from the political sphere. And so the pressures drive you to think in these kinds of ways. It's like, okay, well, there's people who are like pushing for, for this, that, or whatever. Uh, but then also from the spiritual side of it, it's because you don't want to just build, I, I guess you would say for certain people, they have a different uh, fundamental makeup. And so when they have these kinds of political pressures, they've got also a, a, a drive or a desire to transcend it metaphysically, like you had talked about before, where there's this, this inner desire to transcend one's own suffering and one's own limitations in a spiritual sense. And I think this kind of gets into what Harrison was talking about, about how there, there seems to be this, like you said, this divide between the spiritual and the political and how that can be in some sense like fundamental to a personal makeup where some people focus more on the political, others might focus more on the spiritual, but sometimes every so often the two meet and someone realizes that, hey, I can both work on myself and try to help better uh, the world around me. And how you're able to tease these ideas out about how American thinkers, filmmakers, writers, etc., are able to pull and tease out all of these seemingly fundamental truths about the nature of, of our reality uh, is, is really quite, uh, it's quite something. Uh, it's pretty interesting. So uh, would you have like anything more to add in terms of uh, like what Harrison was talking about, about being about this amount, or, or maybe it was you Alon talking about there being an emerging of these two. And if that is a, a way forward for American society, Well, there are a couple of things. One, uh, at the very beginning of what you said, you were you were referring to how uh, these themes like archons or demiurge or uh, uh, Sophia or these other, other different aspects of uh, building blocks of neo-Gnosticism keep recurring. Well, you know, I wanted to mention that when you look at 
something like uh, uh, virtual the virtual reality that Meta quote Meta unquote is trying to um, uh, create right that uh, Zuckerberg has uh, decreed that there shall be uh, vast amounts of of uh, money being dumped into this program to create an artificial realm. And he said uh, in an interview uh, that he saw himself as akin to the divinity in the Old Testament, you know, creating a new world. And really, it doesn't take a lot to see that that is kind of demiurgic. It's really not hard to see that. Uh, you don't need to see the gospel. You don't need to go back to the gospel of Philip uh, to see that that's literally creating an artificial world, right? And what is the point of that world? What is what is the purpose, right? And that's that's something nobody has really been able to explain, but uh, or or enunciate other than it's a point of sale, something, uh, uh, virtual real estate. I don't know, but is that kind of uh artificial environment going to be policed undoubtedly right i mean you can't have your meta virtual reality just kind of a wild west right so it's got to have some archons got to have some structure in there right so these ideas are so implicit they're so inherent in the structure of the world that we find our the society we find ourselves in <coughs> Or many aspects of it that it's uh, that it's no surprise that people uh, rediscover or or reuse these these terms because they describe it so well, right? <coughs> so that's the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say is uh, many of the people that I that I draw on in the book, a number of them at least, are, are referring to. Uh, creating a new a new earth a new or a new world or creating a new uh, way of being in the world and maybe the way they're expressing it is is uh, uh, different than what someone else may express it as but you know uh, a new earth uh, somebody in a post said in uh, Online post said it's designed to bring you forth to higher consciousness, higher frequency light. We're clearing out the old and bringing in the new earth collectively and personally. Well, that's that's a kind of energy that is out there, right? There are alternative communities that are being developed. And, you know, they're not in the news because why would it be in the news, right? It's not something that would be in the news because... It's just, quote, not newsworthy, unquote, to these people who are creating these different, you know, communities, hither and yon. There's an entire movement in Russia, Anastasia movement. Who's heard of that? You know, well, not so many people because it doesn't make, quote, news, unquote, right? But, but these things are happening. So, so I would say that, that there are some very interesting things emerging, uh, some of them are visible in Morewood. Some of them are visible in, you know, these other figures that I mentioned. But then there's a whole section of the book that we we haven't gotten to and we can get to at some point, perhaps, that that is about the future. So 
that's something we're also exploring on at Hyros Institute. So, so we'll save that for uh, another time. No, then, no, <laughs> no, we should get into it. We should jump in. <laughs> well, yeah, let's let's get it. Let's get a preview of that because, like I said, I wanted I want to definitely have you back on again. To once we've finished reading the book, um, I'm sure we'll have many more kind of branches of ideas that we can go off on, but. Yeah, give us give us a hint of of that a hint of that future. Yeah, so what's going on in that chapter? Well, it's it's actually the latter part of the book is is discussing things including uh what I call future gnosis. And so that's that's in the book. It's also a set of themes that that uh on Hyros Institute, we're going to be looking at, uh, we've done a little bit of that. I had a conversation with Kingsley Dennis the other day, and that's on there. Uh, but uh, there's so many different aspects to this. Uh, there's so, you know, there's so much in this book and so much to talk about that I don't want to, you know, I, uh, but but just very briefly, there's a, there's a section that discusses cycles, historical cycles and different theories of history. And then there's a section that discusses future gnosis and different different possibilities in the future, and that's that's a theme that really occupies my attention right now. You know, I I have to say I find this book so exciting. You know, it was so exciting to to discover and explore these different areas, and to have everything converge where it comes out as an Oxford book just gives me a lot of uh, pleasure for a whole variety of reasons. So you know, it's it's been uh enormously entertaining to discuss these different things and uh rewarding so you know i really appreciate the opportunity to discuss discuss them with you you know you you guys are really thoughtful and uh interesting conversationalists and you know i i enjoy it so you know and i enjoyed writing the book and i've enjoyed seeing it go out into the world and uh uh, spread its subversive ideas that are undoubtedly embedded in there in all sorts of ways. So, uh, you know, it's been a great pleasure. Well, I'll just say that one thing I wasn't expecting to find, but that uh, that <laughs> just just made me smile was I was not expecting to find a reference to um, uh, Antarctic Nazi UFOs. Um, but it's it's somewhere in here in the oh it's in, in there oh Serrano. yeah definitely yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that was yeah that was great there's so much so much exotic stuff in there uh you know and it has all these ramifications uh so you know things things are crowding at my mind to to share some of them are not in the book but I discovered them you know just kind of in happenstance so, so like. And, and, you know, you never can see it again. You see this thing again the same way, you know. Uh, so it, it's it's just there's tons of stuff like that. Yeah, there's UFOs, psychedelics, uh, lizard, you know, shape-shifting reptilians from other dimensions. Uh, uh, all the sorts of usual things you would expect. Mm-hmm. Yep, in an OUP, you know, Oxford University Press <laughs> book. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm sure. Well, that's been a question that I, I mean, I guess we'll, we'll wrap up pretty, pretty quick, but just kind of a side question. I've been wondering, um, because I know there, there are a few scholars here and there working in the academy who, who, who look at weird stuff. Um, 
that that isn't usually discussed, you know, in in your average university class. Um, and of course, you you cite you, know, you cite a ton of sources in in this book, including well, a ton of um, maybe not as many primary sources, but you cite some secondary sources. Like I know I mentioned a lot of a, primary. There's a, yeah. almost a thousand endnotes, almost a thousand yeah. endnotes, and they're almost all primary sources. Right. Yeah. So, just how do you see the academic study of these kind of fringe things like are is there anyone else doing the, the kinds of things you do and just in in different areas maybe like different figures maybe um or do you kind of see yourself as as um going into these kind of wholly uncharted territories um this book is uncharted territory yeah. There is April DeConnick did a book uh, sev several years ago. She discusses Nazism in contemporary society. And, you know, uh, Diana Pasulka has done yeah. some uh, interesting work on UFOs. And uh, we actually sat down and had some very interesting chats when she was here on that, you know, uh, some time ago. So, so uh, you know, there are a few of us out there. Uh, but uh, uh, not a great many, and there's stuff in this book that's just wild. So you know, I hope I hope people have a chance to explore it. I'm seeing, and I have to give you a warning. Uh, yep. Uh, my MacBook Air has been uh, acting up, and it is now giving me a low battery warning, which is somewhat right. alarming in the way it, it is showing up. So I'm passing that along. All right. Well, we'll wrap up for today. Um, we'll definitely, we'll, we'll have you back on again soon. So hope maybe in January, um, if that, if that's cool with you, because I want to, I'll finish reading this book or I'm sure we'll finish it, uh, pretty quickly. And then we'll just give the holidays and then, uh, ho hopefully just come right back into it. Because like you said, there's so much more that we can discuss and, uh, and you've dropped some, dropped some hints. I'm interested in the stuff that's not in the book too. So <laughs> maybe we'll ask you about that. Um, but with that said, uh, again, the book is American Gnosis. We'll have links in the description um, as well to Arthur's website uh, websites. Um, anything else to say, Arthur? Uh, anything else that you want people to hear? I would say thank you. Thank you. It's been a, a great conversation. And uh, uh, next time we can talk about the future. All right. Sounds and the lizard, lizard people. people. And the lizard. Oh, yeah. yeah. I want Absolutely. And many right. other things, alchemy too. So. Yes, great. <laughs> All right, okay. thanks, Arthur. Take Thank care. you.